Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. Sendcast concept started a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. There's lots of stuff to read, but we're all really busy and we don't have time to sit and read. Everyone working in schools needs training and support around SEND, but the funding isn't there to achieve this. We created the Sendcast to try and help solve that problem, to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND, and to help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest that's come along to talk about an area they are passionate about. My guest this week is Joanna Grace. Joanna is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist, and she has come on to talk about a book her son wrote called My Mummy is Autistic. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared, and over the last 25 years, B-Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have moved into new areas. Assessment will always be our main focus, but we have seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training in CPD for schools around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started three years ago with a virtual SEND conference, now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, as always, I'll be sharing exclusive Sendcast discount codes to keep listening till the end. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing a book and topics around the book. The book is called My Mummy is Autistic by Heath Grace and Joanna Grace. Joanna is my guest this week, and Joanna is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist, doctoral researcher, author, trainer, TEDx speaker, and the founder of the Sensory Projects. And Joanna has worked with people with learning disabilities and neurodivergent conditions aged from birth to 87 years old, almost as much as Lego, which is birth to 99, I think. Welcome to the show, Joanna. Thanks very much for having me. So your son wrote this book with you when he was five, which I believe makes him the UK's youngest published author. Yeah, well, he was actually four when he was writing the book, but he was five when it was published. And we only found out that that made him the UK's youngest author when one of the news teams came around to interview him when the book was published. And so I went and looked it up. And if we, I think if we'd done it three months earlier, he might have been the world's youngest. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So, so the book is called My Mummy's Autistic, and you sent me some of the, the pages from the book. And it's kind of, he's, he, he's drawn the pictures. Yeah. And, did he, and he's written in there as well. So it's not just a colouring, he's written. He's... Yeah, the, the, whole, the whole book is his. I, I really shouldn't have my name on the cover, but they asked me to write a little explanation. So I pop up at the back explaining what's going on in the pictures. But I, I'm really not necessary. He's done a very good job of explaining himself. And it is amazing because people will sit there and you talk about um, things like different in people. Is isn't, You're not born with that. You're not born going, oh, they're this, I'm different. You're born very accepting and you learn how people are with no judgment, anything. So he 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 just learned how you were. And I suppose over time, did he realise you were slightly different from others? Is that how? <laughs> <laughs> well, the book, 
the book came about in a in a funny sort of way because it was his first he just started school so it was his first summer holiday from school and he's very young in his year group he's like the second youngest in his class and we were shopping in a supermarket one of the people who interviewed him when the book was published asked him do you suffer from having a mummy who's autistic and he just made a face and I said to him afterwards what did you think of that question and he said well I don't know because you're my only mummy yeah quite I'm all you'll ever know (laughs) and then I but I was thinking about it I was thinking oh gosh does he suffer from having an autistic mummy you know you lie awake at you know as you're going to sleep at night thinking is he suffering is he suffering and then I realized what he suffers from is having a primary school teacher for a mummy because what happened was it was the start of the summer holidays and I was looking for reasons to keep him practicing his writing over the summer because when you're small and you're just learning yeah. a whole six weeks you lose your skills you yes. can't be losing your skills with a primary school teacher for a mummy and so one of the things that I used to do is when you go to the supermarket you get him to write the shopping list because it's purposeful writing and it's motivating and and I've always done that with him I've I've done it with him since he was you know just writing in scribbles just yeah. mark making age 2 and it's a way of getting him to practice his writing but it's also a way of him being interested in doing the supermarket shop and so I'd go round you know have we got have we checked the list you know what's what's next on the list so you keep him engaged and we got to the um, checkouts once when he was very small and it was just a list of scribbles and there was quite a long queue and he's not lost the plot in a supermarket touch wood but I was looking at length of this queue thinking if he's ever going to lose it it will be this one and so I was making a big deal of a side let's check the things on the list as we get them out of the trolley and he was looking at this list of scribbles and he said we've forgotten the cucumber mummy and I looked at all the shopping on the belt and like we had <laughs> and, like, oh, and so from then on he's just been in charge of the shopping list because I've stood in the kitchen and gone oh we need bread we need you know baked beans and he's written it down and then when we get to the supermarket he rides on the front of the trolley with his list and tells me where to go he does literally all I have to do when we go shopping is I push the trolley and he deals with the rest of it. And it's brilliant. It does lead to some problems. I had a, I had an argument with him in the crisp aisle because I wanted crisps and they weren't on the list. <laughs> and we were standing right next to a parent and child having the exact opposite argument. And the parent of that couple was looking at me like, how have you swung this? But he was saying to me, you've already had ice cream, mummy, and that wasn't on the list. You can't have two unhealthy things. So I left the supermarket without my crisps. So it's not it's not wow. as good a deal as it, as it looks. But yeah, we were shopping one day and he was doing the list. And I experienced delays in my language processing, which is common to lots of autistic people and lots of neurodivergent people. When When you talk to me, I take in what you say. It's like skim reading a document. I I do take it all in, you know, later on, five minutes after I've finished talking to you, the rest of it will come through and you think, ah. And so on an interview like this, where I know what you're going to be talking to me about, I can get by on the skim read. But in other situations, it makes my communication more glitchy. And so he was riding along on the front of the trolley and I just got back from doing gigs. So I'd been away for the weekend and he was telling me all the exciting things he'd done whilst I was away. And literally all I'm doing is listening to him because I don't have to concentrate on the shop. He's got that under control. But he was talking so fast and I was really tired. I wasn't keeping up. And somewhere in it, he must have said stop 
because he wanted to jump off the trolley to get the tomatoes or whatever it was. And I didn't hit, I didn't get the stop quick enough. And I ran his foot over and I didn't hurt him badly, but he, he just stood there in the aisle and he looked at me, he said, but mummy, I said, stop. And I, I thought, oh, you know, oh, is your foot okay? You know, don't, let's, let's, what were you getting? And I sort of jollied him along. And then as we carried on that shop, I was thinking, I can't promise that I won't do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And so as we were walking out the supermarket, I said to him, you know, mummy's got a bit of a different brain. And when words go into my brain, they have to line up to get and because he just started school like lining up is fascinating because you go from a world where you never have to line up to a world where you have to line up to get food you have to line up to go out to play you have to line up when you leave a room lining up is a big deal and I think it was because I explained it like that that it it sort of made sense in his brain and I said and your stop hadn't got to the front of the line because there was lots of other words waiting in front of it and he looked at me like this is the excuse an adult makes for being allowed to run over my foot. (laughs) (laughs) And then the next morning, because he's got a primary school teacher for a mummy, I wanted to check he'd understood. You know, you need to check their learning, don't you? So I sitting there over breakfast, I was saying to him, do you remember what happened yesterday? He said, yes, you ran over my foot. (laughs) He's like, great. I'm so glad you remember. (laughs) I was like, do you remember why? And he went, yes, because your brain is broken. And I said, no, (laughs) because we talk a lot about inclusive things in our house. And he did this kind of sigh and he got up and he got a piece of paper and he drew me a picture. And looking back on it now, I think that shows insight just through experience because he knew if he wanted to get me to understand something properly, I'd need to see it, not hear it in language. And he drew the picture that I think you have of all the words like squashing onto my ear and going in one at a time to show me that he understood. And I said, oh, that's that's really good. You could write a sentence underneath that because I was thinking, let's practice our... Always pushing it, always pushing it. Yeah. Oh, this is a good opportunity for a sentence. And then I said to him, oh, you could make a little book, you know. And, And the next day we drew another picture and wrote another sentence. And we did that for a couple of days. And then he said, I don't want to do this anymore. It's boring. And I thought, right, I need to think of another way to make writing interesting. You know, look at, look at me, let's um, write a treasure hunt. Let's write a letter to grandma. And then I was talking to him on a walk. I said, you know, mummy's written lots of books. And sometimes it's quite boring to write the book, but it's quite nice to have written a book. And I just left that in the air. And then the next morning I was like, would you like to do a picture for your book? <laughs> and, and he did the rest of the pictures um, one by one for the sort of the days of the holiday. And at the end of the holiday, I'd thought we would, you know, staple it together and show it to grandma. But I was looking at them and thinking, I think these are really good. There's a lot um, more here. Yeah. But then I'm his mummy and I think, the sun shines out of his tiny bottom. So of course I think they're good. But I, because I have a publisher, I sent them to my editor and I said, what do you think of these? And they have to go through, you know, like committees and groups and other people other than his mummy have to think it's good to get it published. And he had to draw a few extra pictures for them because the books have to be a particular page length long. So there was a few more to do afterwards. But yeah, that's, it's just bonkers that, that it's that it's a book now and Chris Packham wrote us the foreword which is you know you just you definitely don't imagine that happening no. as a result of running over your child in a supermarket it always starts in strange places doesn't it things like yeah. that yeah 
But it is, is you go to people's houses and you look at what's on there, stuck on their fridge, and it's just a big splat. You're going, really? You stuck that up on the wall? <laughs> oh, oh no. I have a one-year-old and we have splats stuck on the fridge. <laughs> but it is, it's, you, are, you are really very proud of your children. And sometimes you think, am I being overly proud? Or is, is this amazing? Is this really good? Yeah, and it's hard, and it's, it's great when other people see it as well. That's really nice. Yeah. But it is, yeah. it's, all, it's amazing, is the thing, because let's see, I'm trying, to think, we're trying to work out the first time I heard the phrase autism, probably I was secondary school, college. Yeah. As a, as a, as a young person, my mum works in special needs, but didn't really come in until, until I was at college type thing, even hearing it. And I think Rain Man had been out and I hadn't really paid anything. But it, so I didn't really, and then you learn, I go, oh, and... When you find you kind of think your first thought is, oh, so it's a, it's a disadvantage, it's a yeah. broken, it's a th- not a difference. But my daughters, I think, probably because of us at home talking about special needs got a lot, but I think they are much more aware of various needs and conditions and do really see it as a difference or that's just the way they are. And that's as far as their brain has got with it all. I hope so. That that sounds nice for the future. I think I'm probably, we're probably a similar age. I'm probably a bit older than you, but I... You know how much white hair I've got on my beard. <laughs> I know, but it's not, yeah, I still think I'm older than you. Um, I, I was, I'm just thinking, you know, I hope that as I talk today, I'm, I don't come across as, it's, it's an odd hope, isn't it? Because you sort of hope people can't spot it and it's much easier for me for you not to spot it when we're on a, a web interview than if we were in the real world because eye contact's an easy one for spotting isn't it yeah. and to make eye contact with you here all I have to do is look at a tiny little camera so, yes. so I'm great at eye contact online I'm considerably less good at it in real life but I still like to think that people don't spot it and that's wrong that's a problem in my head that I like to think that I that's something I need to get over but when I was younger I would have been a lot more noticeable you know I flapped and I ate beige and I didn't interact with peers and I had repetitive obsessive interests and things like that and I first came across the word autism when I was 11 and I read a magazine article in one of my mum's like women's magazines and it said this is a thing and this is a problem and this is what's wrong with you if you're autistic. And I was reading this article and thinking, oh, right, okay, so that's what the problem is. And it was the old triad of impairments. You know, you won't have imagination, you won't be able to socialise, you won't be able to, you know, do this and that. And I sort of took that. I was quite a serious little 11-year-old and I thought, okay, so those are the things I need to fix in order to not be autistic. And I figured I'd got the imagination one down because I've always been like imaginative play. So I was like, well, I've done that. I just need to do those other two and then this won't be a problem anymore. And by the time I was 17, I considered to have... I considered myself fixed, <laughs> but it turns out your brain doesn't change just because you read an article in a woman's magazine. No, but that's the thing. I think, I do think younger generations are going to be so much better. You can, not always, and I think boys stand out much easier. And it is, I think that trial of impairment, all that sort of stuff has comes from 
that boy typical presentation where they're this and my nephew one of my nephew fits into that really well he will just go on and on about a specific topic be just whether you're interested or not doesn't matter he's talking to you about it and they've done a lot his parents have worked with him and helped him and, he, and it's kind of and you and again so different situations and he's now he you wouldn't really notice apart from he got a job got put in a new situation and he hadn't picked up by osmosis the social etiquette in those situations so he although he was 18 yeah, he didn't know how to do things he just he hadn't picked it up whereas a lot of the time people were just you watch things going on and you kind of pick things up but his brother very different presentation very different and their youngest brother even more different presentation and it's only i think as they get older that it comes out for them you really start to see the difference but the thing is when you talk to my sister you don't hear all the negatives you hear some of the things that make their life a challenge but she's often telling you about all these amazing things they've done or they're doing and that's the thing it's it is a real difference it's not yeah they're not fitting in the typical mold yeah but they are doing this they can do this they've done amazing things yeah it's a it's a complicated one so you you said about your older nephew not necessarily reading the social circumstances i i do okay but i've learned all of my different situations consciously i don't pick them up instinctively and i still am missing a couple so for example i've not learned how to catch a taxi i mean i know what you do you you sit in the taxi and you ask where to go but there is a social context there and people go, well, you just, you know, talk to a driver if you want to, don't talk to a driver if you don't want to. You're like, it's not that simple. Social situations are never that simple. If I just do as I please in a social situation, I will get it wrong. And I've got it wrong lots of times. And so I don't catch taxis, which then puts me at risk because I travel nationwide. And I quite often get to places late at night on the train and I will walk half an hour, 40 minutes across, you know, a town at 11 o'clock at night in the dark on my own. And I've got into, you know, it puts me in danger doing that. And so there's a knock-on effect to that. But you said as well that you don't necessarily notice. And I said, I hoped you didn't notice. And then I said that that was a problem with me. There is a huge problem in our understanding of how we support autistic people because most of the therapies are about making us look like we're not autistic. Yeah. It's just literally a performance of being normal. And I think if you have an autistic child, you meet that autism as you meet your child. And it's frightening because it is different to what you expected. And you know that it's going to cause them problems because they won't be, you know, it won't be as easy for them. And you don't wish them to have those problems. So you wish for it to go away and you wish to make them normal. And you can't, you, you, you fundamentally can't because it's a different wiring in the brain. If you do those therapies to them that make them parrot normal, you're just asking for mental health difficulties in the future. Yeah, you've seen the ones where it's like if they stim, if they're literally going, this is my release, and you get rid of that because it's not socially acceptable to do that, you're basically taking away their release, their way of calming. Yeah. And that is going to have a big knock-on effect. I was was talking to a teacher a few weeks ago who was in charge of a a big base, five classes of 
little autistic children and these are four-year-olds and she was listing the different therapies that they do with them and one of the therapies is a therapy to teach them to play correctly and I just I was so I was so upset by that because you imagine I, I checked it with Heath actually I said oh, I was talking to this lady today and she's she's trying to make autistic children play in a normal way she's teaching them how to play and he said you can't teach somebody how to play people just know how to play it's play I'm like Yep. He said, if you did teach them, it would be work, not play. Yep. <laughs> That's yep. it. It's not, it's not play. And you, sh- you should just be allowed to play how you like. You know, I want, I'd love it if autistic settings that had little children like that in brought in autistic adults who wanted to play, you know, like neurotypical adults yep. join in with children's play and they make the little sort of characters. Let's get an autistic adult in and we'll all line up our toys in like beautiful order. And we can play. That's the thing. The whole thing is play is it's relaxing. You may be learning. But to me, the whole point of play is enjoyment. Yeah. And if we're having to learn rules and remember rules and it doesn't come naturally to you. So, yes, there is sharing toys, things like that. But if it doesn't come naturally to you, being forced to it isn't play. And um, my nephews love computer games. I think it's, it's, again, I'd love to do various research on various cohorts of people and work out neurodiversity. And it is a computer game, not an online multiplayer game, but generally a computer game is very predictable. Playing Minecraft, Terraria, various others. It's a very safe world where the rules are fixed. You know what's going to happen. You're not going to go into a situation you're not expected because the controls are very limited. So you know what's going to happen. You know you're not going to be faced with something. It's either I can jump up there or I can't. Not I can jump up there if I smile at that person and do that. It is these are the rules. You live by them. And it, it, my my nephews, it's very comforting because there's no expectations placed on them as well. And I do, yeah, I think conforming, not great. Um, I did a, a podcast with uh, Fintan O'Regan about is it should we be making children conform or should we be celebrating their differences? Um, and it is the people who are different are the people who change the world because they are seeing it through different eyes. They're not going, well, this is the way it has to be. They're going, well, this makes so much more sense. You're not hooked up on the emotional reasons or the psychological reasons or the old ways of doing things because you're just going, this makes so much more sense. We should do it this way. And it's not just for those children that you do it, because if you are trying to make one child be more normal, that sends a message to the children around that you're not supposed to not be normal. You know, and once we all conform to a certain way, then we all must be that certain way. And nobody is, you know, normal is a dangerous word to use, isn't it? But nobody fits normal. And actually a classroom where a difference is acknowledged, not because that's the other thing. Like, we all don't talk about that. Don't look at them. They're being, they're being weird. Don't watch. Just, just plainly acknowledge. Like, oh, he's doing that. That's, that's what he does. You're doing that. That's what you do. These things are all fine. These things are all equivalent. It's a classroom where everybody feels more allowed to be themselves and to be authentic. And that's, that's good for everybody's mental health. Not just even the teacher's mental health. <laughs> not just, not just the kid. And I think is that misunderstanding of what would be best is to make them fit that mold that yeah to get them to stop being odd it's it's sorry it's just a bit too close to home for me <laughs> i bet it's um, i i like um have you seen the film goodwill hunting yes a long time ago so i, I like that film robin williams uh great character 
um, Matt Damon. Great, it's a great film. I love it. I watch it every so often. And it's it and it's a whole thing about relationships. And he says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna make it really easy for you. The girl you're interested in, Minnie Driver, she isn't perfect. Yeah, she isn't perfect. Nor are you. But are you perfect together? Yeah, <laughs> is the thing. And it's and Robin Williams in the film, his wife had died, and he says. It's all the, he calls them peccadillos, all the strange things, all the differences are the bits you remember. Yeah. If everyone is the same as everyone else, what do you remember about them? If you remember Joe Grace will walk a long way instead of getting a taxi, that <laughs> sticks in your memory. Yeah, that's not a good one. <laughs> but, but those differences, they kind of, in people's minds, I think, tell you about them, make them more interesting, make them more memorable, rather than just being the same as everyone else, liking everything else. And there's safety in the numbers of being like everyone else. You won't get noticed, you won't get picked on and blah, blah, blah. But you are then just the same as everyone else and who really are you? Whereas I'm, I I, I haven't got any diagnosis, but I know I'm somewhere. And uh, Vincent, I start talking to Vincent, I'm literally going, this is me. This is me. This is me. Oh dear. Um, so I'm somewhere. I know I'm not typical. I know I'm neurodiverse in various ways, but I haven't got a diagnosis. I might do that at one point just so I get an answer. But then I, I firstly yep. feel I don't need an answer. I'm personally. You, you, you know who you are now. Yeah. I'll do a little championing of the use of a diagnosis because I, from time to time I'll meet somebody online who said, my GP won't put me forward for a diagnosis because there's no services for adults or something like that. And the research shows that just knowing like what your little label is counts for a huge amount in terms of your mental health. And it also has physical health outcomes. Um, and it's like the knowledge is power thing, isn't it? Knowing, knowing what you are, knowing how your brain works enables you to adapt more to the environment. And I'm somebody, like I said, I, I read that article when I was 11. And when I was 11, I thought, oh, that's probably me. I was diagnosed at 36. And between 11 and 36, I've had a career in special education. I've worked with lots of autistic people you know I thought I knew a good deal about autism and then my diagnosis papers come through and it's this massive document you know 16 yes. pages of something and there's loads in there I didn't know you know I didn't realize that was something to do with autism I didn't realize that was to do with autism oh oh that makes sense of that you know and there were so many little light bulb moments that I've then been able to action in life and life has got tremendously easier post-diagnosis than pre-diagnosis um for me okay i'm quite lucky so i get to talk to lots of amazing people like you and finton <laughs> arna grant sarah jane critchley who have either yeah. got children who, who are who are telling their experiences i'm literally going i've, I've done that i did that, I did that. <laughs> and it is i'm literally it's, it's it's almost like an echo chamber i listen to you and it describes so many parts of my life as well all the way through so i think i don't need a diagnosis because all it confirms is which one I am or my both, whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I do things and my wife just goes, you're so autistic, but not in a horrible way. It's just, she's basically saying, yeah, that's not what everyone yeah. does. That's one of your weird bits. But she also knows the fact I'm weird is what makes me me. It's why she loves me mostly. Um, 
but it, I do things in different ways. I see problems differently. I just solve problems. I get anxious, but I solve it in a very different way to her. And people at work say I'm very different to everyone. So I, I, I know I'm different, but I'm really happy with that because I've not, I've never been in a crowd. I've never had a, a tribe of friends, which I've always belonged to. I probably like, like you, I felt different. That's a weird one. My PhD that I'm studying for currently is in identity and belonging. And the, what you just said, I've never had a tribe of people that I belong to, never, never in part of a crowd. Given the autism diagnosis, suddenly there's this massive group of people that I belong to. And you look at them and you think, oh, yeah, I clearly fit in here. This is, And there's a weirdness to that sense of belonging because you're used to the, the being the odd one out. And I, I had always thought of myself who was some, someone different because I wasn't behaving like everybody else was and everybody else would think in a certain way and then I'd think in a different way and you'd just get used to yourself as this different person. And then post-diagnosis, I meet a load of other adult autistic women and you're like, oh, I'm not original at all. <laughs> I'm just a, I'm just a cookie-cutter no, version I, of all of these I people. I am original. I am just original. Not as much as I thought. <laughs> it's like that scene in Madagascar 2 or 3. <laughs> I haven't watched enough films. Oh, Madagascar. You know, the, it's the, the animals which I, are in New York yeah. Zoo. In the second one, they go in, end up in Africa or somewhere, and the zebra finds out that he's the same as every other zebra. It's like, oh, yeah, but can you do this? And he does a water trick, and they all just do yeah. it. And he's like, yeah. Oh, I thought I was so different, and I'm part of a How depressing is that? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's so, precisely it. I'm partly quite happy being on my own. You're just going to stand on the outside. Yeah. It doesn't alone. count. Yeah, but that's it. But it is. So is it a good thing that I've always felt like this, or is it a bad thing? If I'd known earlier, would it have changed things? I'm hoping younger people, as they go through, because they're more accepting, yeah. and everyone is different, that actually it goes away. And... My sister, my young, my sister, my youngest daughter is in secondary, and we, I think we're going to go for a diagnosis at some point. Um, and it's, I'm not going to say li slightly or little or big or heavy or, t or any of that. I'm going to say it hasn't hugely impacted her yet. So she's yeah. very good at masking and things like that, and that ties her out. But socially, yeah, she's doing dangerous. really well, and she's got yeah. a group, and they're yeah. all slightly different, but they all kind of are accepting of each other yeah to know to know what your difference is and to be able to be out and proud about it it's like the gay narrative isn't it yeah it, it's best your best mental health option is when you're marching in pride yes so so for, so for her and i see that and i saw how my other daughter um there was a boy in her class at primary who used to not cope and have a bit of a meltdown and would go off and sit on a step and occasionally they'd have to clear the classroom and you'd hear about something from a parent you go oh what happened in school today and it's oh this happened oh but it was just such a non-event to the child the parents made a deal of it yeah but it was it's just the way they are yeah I, I quite often get asked do you wish you'd been diagnosed earlier and it's a tricky question because if I had been diagnosed at 11 the support available to me would have been the support that was available when I was 11. And so it wouldn't really have made any 
particular difference, I don't think. But if you rephrase the question as, would you want somebody like you diagnosed earlier now? I absolutely would, um, because the adjustments that could be made now and the understanding that people around me could have now would make for just a much... I mean, I, d I don't wish my life to be different, but if I was thinking about it for my child, I would wish for them to have a much easier run of it than I had. Yes, definitely. So you you read that article when you were 11 about autism yeah. and you went, ooh, this sounds very much <laughs> like me. And I've never seen how broken, apparently. Um, and then yeah. you got diagnosed at 36. So did you, so you sort of said, you sort of, I worked really hard on myself and I solved autism. And then you, so was it a case of, I'm, I'm, I'm very autistic. I've got to do something about this too. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm doing all right. Or oh, I am, I'm not. I, was it that sort of thing? Or was it, I'm always autistic and then something made you get a diagnosis? Oh, I, I learned, you know, I very slowly and gradually learned the social skills that I was missing. Um, and it, there's always a difference in the way that you perform them because other people know them on instinct and you're performing them by rote. And so for some situations, I'm, I'm, I'm still glitchy. For others, I think there's a value to that conscious learning um, because people who run on instinct, they sort of run at a particular level the whole time, whereas I started off below them, but I learned and I learned and I learned. And in a couple of places, I reckon I'm higher now because I've got a more detailed understanding of something. And so I can give a more... you thought about it rather yeah, than just I've definitely thought about it, yeah. And so I, I, sometimes I can be more sort of socially aware than a neurotypical person. Um, but there are, there are huge numbers of risk factors associated with being autistic. And I want to pop in somewhere that I realise that when people like me talk about being autistic it can my my biggest fear is that it would detract from somebody who leads a more challenged life um because obviously i'm facing relatively few challenges i, I mean i'm still it, it's yeah i don't want to detract from somebody who leads a more challenged life um but since i've come out and the coming out has been a big deal for me because i've kept it hidden for a very long time the people who I get the most support from are parents of children who would be described as having those more challenged lives, you, people who are not using language, people who are under a lot of distress. And they say, that thing you said, I think that's what's going on for my child, but like at a different level. And so there's a, it is a spectrum condition. We're in different parts of the spectrum, but there's a commonality throughout it. And if people are in my place can articulate things it gives insight for people in a different situation on the spectrum and I, I hesitated then on saying you know um, um people who lead a more challenged life because last year when I had my baby being autistic threatened my life and the life of my child which feels pretty challenging when it's you <laughs> so it's not um it's not nothing just because I can talk it's still has times when it's life-threatening um and it there's yeah there's lots of difficulties associated with it none of them are difficulties born out of the brain difference they're they're all difficulties born out of the misunderstanding or the trying to perform as something else um and it, we're sort of background in a loop to forcing children to play aren't we i did actually a, a set of youtube videos 
for primary school teachers, I mean, it, it could be secondary school teachers or early years teachers. I was thinking primary school teachers called the seven minute Senko. And they were insights into how you support autistic children and how you set targets for autistic children, how you evaluate whether the targets that you've set are going to be, are they, are they useful to that child or are they just part of making them mask, teaching them to mask? Yeah. So you mentioned there about um, not being challenged. There's been a lot of conversation in the last few months uh, with a couple of celebrities being diagnosed with autism. Yes. Uh, Paddy McGuinness's wife. And Melanie Sykes. That's the one. Yes. So. Harry from the PDA. PDA Harry man spotted Melanie. Wow. So they came out and there was lots of, wow, this is great. And then. I'd read on social media, then negativity came along and it was, and they, I don't know if you had a high functioning who are yeah. doing things and then the low functioning, uh, which you said more challenging. Where yeah. The autistic impact. community rejects the functioning labels. Yes. So you didn't mention that. Okay. Oh, that's a term I've heard. So I just want to say it. But every, okay. So yes, yeah, so yeah. there's this height and the low and I'm going to me, raising the profile is great. Yeah. And again, so I've got a nephew who's in year eight who, uh, when he's bored, will read A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and understand it in year eight. Well done to your nephew. <laughs> yeah, if you ask him to write a story, that's going to be a very different thing. Yeah. He, he wants to be a microbiologist. So he understands he really should have the vaccine. He understands everything about it. He could tell you about it and explain to you scientifically. But he can't have it because he can't handle someone touching him. Mm. So his autism, you sit there and go, oh, so that so he's really, then it's always down here. And it, so, yeah, I, yeah, again, watching my nephews and how they're all very different and some bits really impact them and other bits don't. So with my middle nephew, if when we go for a family meal in the beef eater and we have lunch, doesn't hugely affect him is what I can see. So I'm literally, he's having fun with his brother. He's talking to my daughters. Life seems quite all right. After a couple of hours, he goes, can I go home now? And he can't cope. And you go, fine, okay. So he's not that autistic. Kind of, you might see that and you wouldn't notice because he's having fun. That you don't look autistic. It's another classic. Yep. But when you start putting him in a different context, so as part of his EHCP, you have to have the pupil's voice. And then I started asking questions about school and things. And it was a very, very different. He was very different in those situations. So the social bit, he's worked out that. They're talking about things he enjoys. Life is good. But in this situation where I'm asking him questions about school, which he doesn't enjoy and he doesn't like, I, I use the phrase, so what would you change about school? And he's like, not to go to school. Okay. How do you like school? And he got his timetable out, talked about every single lesson, not the whole idea of school. He talked about it was very, it was very specific. And that didn't come out in the situation in the pub. So it was really interesting um, how autism presents itself in different situations. Yes. I find is amazing. Um, those videos I was telling you about, one of them was about capacity and context. There are situations in which I'm a very capable person and there are situations in which I'm a disabled person. Yeah. I, I think that's a challenge for the autistic community because some of the 
some advocates will say it's just straight brain difference. This is not a disability. This is a brain difference. And in order to be respected, we must have this acknowledged as straight difference. Whereas other people would say, if you're not acknowledging that this is a disability, you're insulting people who lead these extremely challenged lives. And when I was sort of debating with myself whether to come out or not, I kept going back and forth between that. Is this a disability or is this a difference? Because if I come out and say this and I'm claiming a disability, I don't feel I have a right to that claim because I'm, you know, I'm perfectly able. Of course I am. I, I can imagine family members shouting at me as I say, oh, of course I'm perfectly able. They go, well, what about this, Joe? Because you're really like rubbish at that and you can't do that, can you? And you, you, there's been no hope for you there. But I, no, I'm fine. <laughs> fine. And if it's a difference, then I'm quite happy to claim it. I think it is both. And I think the community needs to recognize both and be proud and equally sort of embracing of, of both options. You asked me, your earlier question to me was, why did I get diagnosed at 36 when I'd fixed it at 17? Um, <laughs> it's because it, it, it's not a fixable thing and not knowing your identity and not being proud of your identity and not being informed about it puts you in vulnerable situations like that you're not catching taxis, but there's multiples of them. And it, it gets very personal very quickly if I was to explain them. But I, I ended up in a relationship that I'll just leave that empty. Yes, yes, and, yes. <laughs> uh, I think the phrase was, your, your head's broken, you need to go and get it fixed. And I was sent to the doctors. Wow. I was I was forced to go. And I, so I, I went and I got my, I came home and went, I'm, well, I'm not broken. I'm autistic, actually. It takes a little bit longer than that, but it, it was a fairly straightforward process. And from having that label, then the changes start to happen and you can protect yourself a bit more. My, my, my nephew got a diagnosis of, it was, um, so he's got autism, but he's also got dysgraphia. Yeah. And he got his diagnosis. And this was amazing because you, you worry about having a diagnosis is giving them a label which will limit their life because they've now got this label. It's better for them if they didn't have this label. You <laughs> it's, hear not, that's... Not, it's not. It's <laughs> not. Oh, said, I know. The label has nothing to do with it. It's just labels are just words. They're just we use labels all the time. When we say tree, you're using a label. The problem is the prejudice. It's not the word. And also, if he if he gets this label and then he gets support, yeah, it's whether a he has this label or not, he needs the support. So give yeah. him the label and then he can access the support. Yeah. But for when he got his diagnosis, his his first thing he said to his mum was, I'm not stupid. Yes. Yeah. These things that I've tried really, really hard to do that everybody else can do so easily. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And every time I've failed to do them, I felt that I was doing something wrong or that I should try harder or that there was a problem with me. Turns out it wasn't my fault. You yeah. know, and there are things like that that have beaten my self-esteem down over the years because I can see how easily everybody else is doing them. So I must be, there must be something fundamentally wrong with me that I can't do them. And then you go, ah, oh, it's not that it's not, it's like trying to make a cat into a dog. There's nothing wrong with being a cat, but there are definitely aspects of being a dog that the cat will never be able to do that the dog does with ease. And that's what those those therapies are aiming to do they're aiming to turn cats into dogs and it's nicer just to celebrate the cat and your celebrity thing you know it, it's that if you've got role models if you've got visibility beyond just rain man and sheldon then 
it doesn't matter who it is or what part of the spectrum they're from. We just need lots of them, you know, all sorts of different ones. Look up Emma Braggs to, to see an amazing autistic advocate who doesn't use language. And it, it's like the gay narrative, isn't it? I, I really, the, the stories around po minority populations or oppressed populations or populations against whom there's prejudice, it's, it's a very similar pattern. And what you would want for a young gay child is for them to see a whole world of, you know, different gay adults to go, look, this is what your options are. You'd want them to see those people in storybooks. You'd want them to see them represented in film. And every time a celebrity like that comes out, we get a little bit more representation and I think it's hugely brave of them I saw Christine McGuinness on a she was on another program and they were trying to teach her a dance and it was one of these dances where you dance against something like a partner dance like a strictly come dancer but it wasn't strictly yeah. you dance with somebody and he said you've got to look in my eyes and she said I can't and she and then she was he was like no just just look here just look just look at my nose then and she said it's painful and she flinched away and you think for the rest of it she had appeared you know, you'd go, oh, you're not autistic. And she so obviously struggled. And then as she walked out with him, she was apologizing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry about that. And he was, oh, don't worry, you'll get it next time. And she said, well, I'm autistic and it's difficult for me. He said, it's all right, don't worry. Like, no, she's not going to get it next time. It's always going to be difficult for her. That I got to see that on television is so just fantastic for me. And it's great for so many people. And it is that having role models. And that's the thing, I suppose... When you think back to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, huge numbers of people, most of us, I don't know what percentages, but it might be 80, 90% of the people are white. Yep. And straight. Yep. And when there was a storyline around any, anyone who was gay or anything, that was a big thing. It was a scandal. It was heaped up, which yep. almost did the, the opposite of what it was supposed to do. But if you are gay, it's a scandal. You, and you, and, yeah. You've remember, used lots of like film references. I've just been re-watching Dawson's Creek from the 90s and there's a character in that that comes out as gay and watching how everybody talks to him and the, the conversations around his coming out is, yeah, that's a real time trip. I bet. But you, you think back to then and it's the idea of a role model. So I, I as a white male, I can literally go, so I can do anything I want because yeah, white you're males fine. are everywhere. Yeah, you're a straight white man, you rule. Yes, life is easy. But then, yeah, if you're black, it's like, oh, so I'm I'm the cleaners, am I? Because that's what they were. I'm the rubbish man. I'm I'm yeah. okay. Or I'm the criminal type thing. And you just you see this in all these old TV programs. And actually, it's getting so much better that we are seeing special needs, disability, autism, all the whole gamut of types of people on TV. Yeah. And as you said, people are going, yeah. I'm dyslexic, I've got ADHD, I've got autism. So we're getting actually a huge range of role models coming out that we can actually sit there and go, yeah, it's different. Yeah. It can be challenging, but if you can shape your world your way, you will fly. But there will be times where you can't have your world your way and you will struggle. Yeah. I get capacity and context. Find find the place where where you fit. And school probably isn't that. No, no other that time education in my system. life. Yeah, have I been asked to spend thirty hours a week in a room with thirty people who I didn't choose? The stress of that is absolutely spectacular. 
you know as I'm somebody now who if you list off the things I've got to do it sounds ridiculous because I've done a TED talk I've had eight books published I publish a load of books myself I get to train all around the world we're just chatting to you before we started the recording saying I did the international storytelling thing in Singapore and I've had awards and I've just also I've been on the radio and I used to be a classroom teacher and I could never manage to do that for more than three days a week because the not because the teaching was fine with the teaching it was the staff room bit and I had absolutely lovely colleagues but I was expected to sit in a staff room with a with a random selection of social people and and I I enjoy doing that it's not that I dislike any of those people or that I didn't want to be there. It's just, it's so extraordinarily knackering that I had to work part-time. And and I people were watching me. They said, you'll burn out. I only, I only managed it for a number of years. I didn't, I couldn't have done it forever. And now I have created my job. I work for myself. So most of my week, I'm in a room on my own. You know, occasionally I pop up in front of like 200 people and chat to them and it's really exciting and really fun. And then I go back and sit in a room on my own. <laughs> like, it is, it's, you, you perform for a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's a real part. It's not a fake part of me. It's a real part. I'm genuinely really thrilled. And I'm living the autistic dream, aren't I? Because I get to go and talk to people about the thing I'm interested in and they listen and they want to listen. It's like autistic paradise. It is, and I think there's more. There's, there's a lot more. People are recognising the differences. You talk about uh, um, pharmaceutical companies want people with OCD because they've got all this testing that has to happen exactly at the same time, and most people Perfect. get quite bored with it. You're like, no, oh, line it up really neatly. This has no. You've done that one millimeter too. Well, it's great. So you're literally going. Actually, there are so many benefits to these differences. We yeah. need to harness them. And hopefully schools will start to reckon, well, actually, these are good things. We should maybe promote, not promote as in we should do it, but actually say to people, actually, we'll stop trying to make you conform. We'll find a way to push you in the direction you want to go. Yeah, sounds like a nice dream. And that would be good for everybody because then everybody would allow it be knowing that they could just be themselves. And also, wherever you end up, there shouldn't be the stigma that you're not as good as that person we're all different and we're all part of the same big machine whatever your role is we're all part of it i think we've gone all over the place in this podcast yep (laughs) but yeah it started it started with your son describing your autism in the way he saw it and how as a difference and did he know just last last little bit of conversation Mm. did he realize when did he realise you were different? I, th- I, th- or is, it's is it like not- it's like that question that the people asked him. What's it like having an autistic mummy? He's only ever known this mummy. Yeah. One of one of our friends said he's got you know twenty four hour seven day a week experience of what autistic is. Um, so it was more me pointing out to him which bits of me count under that. So he knows me really well. So in the book, he talks about the language processing differences. He talks about mummy's listening face and his listening face. I'll listen to you with my head at sort of 45 degrees from you. He looks at how I I still stand alone in playgrounds because I, I have to stand in a playground every day again now. And, you know, people stand in groups and chat and I stand. I just stand. <laughs> I I hated that. There was always one or two parents 
that I would go to. But then if they were with other people, yeah, I wouldn't. Well, I've got a second son now and he will start school in a couple of years. And my genuinely, my big aim is to get the playground right this time around because I haven't done it with Heath. Um, but I've got another chance coming up and I never managed it in any other playground in my life. And I'm literally prepping for it now, two years in advance. I'm taking notes in the playground. I know, I, I know that I need to action my plan like the very first day that he starts. I was even thinking I'll go to the bit where they show you around the school because obviously I already know my way around that school and I know what they do because Heath's just gone all the way through it. But if I go to that bit and I try and, I don't know, there must be, that feels like it would be useful. Like you talk to different parents or like yeah. at least spot which parents are your best chance of talking to. <laughs> But yeah, sounds, I'm, I'm two years away from it and I'm doing reconnaissance to work out how to chat to people in the playground. <laughs> but I would sit there and go, why bother? But you're doing it for uh, your children, aren't you? You're doing mm, it for... Yes and no. Or is it a personal thing? I I really like people. Um, I'm really fascinated by how human people are. And there's been a couple of times... So I, I used to work in a secondary school and I was a teaching assistant and I was supported an autistic boy. And so I used to go to all of his lessons with him and I knew all the teachers, you know, I used to sit in the staff room and read books. So I wasn't talking to people, but I knew this school of however many hundred teachers. And there was a young English teacher and she was lovely. You know, she was really fun. Her lessons were really great. She was always really supportive of the kids with additional needs and she seemed really fun and I was sure that she had a big circle of friends and you know a fantastic life and she killed herself in a horrific manner one weekend and we got to school and she was dead and you think I should have been her friend I thought she was brilliant I should have known I should have if I if I had been able to make a connection with her then you know maybe and there's been another there was there's been another suicide in my life like that where it was somebody who i who i had huge like warm regard for i definitely was you know i watch people i i check that they're okay i keep an eye on the people in my village you know i i put dinners on people's doorsteps things like that i'm good at those sorts of things but the day to day social chit chat i'm rubbish at you know I, there's no making small talk with me but if i could make those connections then i could be a bit better at how i I don't know, <laughs> protect I know, I know. their lives, like look after them. Yeah. The part, part of the reason I was asking about the difference is because he's probably, now he's at school, or probably yeah. not the last couple of years, he's then sort of seen other parents and interacting with other adults. Yeah. And is it a case of he's going, oh, see, okay, so my mum, you don't, oh, okay. And again, it's not different. Or do, that's why I was leading towards, is it a case of now he's interacting with more adults? Yeah. Is he seeing the difference more? Probably. Yes, he definitely notices that the other parents wear coats. Because, <laughs> you know, that thing where you can't get an autistic child to put their coat on. When you're an autistic adult, you don't have to put your coat on anymore. <laughs> Free. So I drop him off to school in a T-shirt in the snow and he's like, the other mummies are wearing coats. You should really wear a coat. So interesting. Me and my daughters don't wear coats, even in the snow. My skin's waterproof. I don't need a coat. It's not. It's not the be-all and end-all of life. I, I, I wear a coat for rain. That's it. I don't wear it for warmth unless it's really cold. 
Yeah. But generally, we're going out there. It's like, yeah, but we're going to get it's in the car. Fussy. It's like, and then we're going to walk there. Just get cold and warm up again. Why take a coat? It's just yeah. Hustle. Yeah, it's, exactly. Exactly. And this is one of those things where if you can articulate it here, then it could be useful for somebody else. Because when I do bookings, so another thing I struggle with is wearing my shoes. I don't particularly struggle with my, I can wear my shoes. It's not a massive struggle. It's just, it takes a bit of concentration to wear shoes. It's like, it's as if, um, like if you ask somebody else to lie in a coffin, they'd go, oh, it's a bit small in here. It's a bit, uh. and it's like that. It's like, oh, I've got, and you go, it's okay. It's just shoes. It's fine. And then your toes go, and you go, it's just shoes. It's fine. And you just have to keep having that conversation with yourself. And so on my contracts that people sign when they book me to run training, I have it specified on my contract that I will work without shoes on. And that should I hurt my feet whilst I do that, I take liability for it. Um, and so people have to sign before they book me to say that I will be allowed to work without my shoes on. Because I'm somebody who's articulate, because I can put that in a contract, I get to live without my shoes on. If I was somebody who had greater needs, if I faced more challenges, and I probably would be somebody then who would really, really need to not wear their shoes, I'd be forced to wear them. It's interesting because it's the fact you can articulate that is mm. great. And the fact you're sharing it, someone else go, I really struggle with that too. See, you're you're my you're my nephew's worst nightmare. He can't cope with bare feet. Oh, that's fine. He can wear his shoes then. That's fine. Put your socks on. But yeah, you're not allowed to be uh, in bare feet near him. Can't touch his stuff with bare feet. Okay. So, but that's his thing. So, in a situation, he'll be fine. You take his foot off and walk past him. He now can't cope. It's the context. <laughs> but, it, but it's just fascinating how different people are in different ways, and it is what makes you comfortable. So, um. I, I am B squared. I, I do we be B squared. We are a big company, We're not big yeah. as uh, thirteen of us, but we all wear what we want. Yeah, it's it's that child life. That life at school is very different from the grown up world. It gets easier if you're an autistic child watching, listening. It gets easier. I wear trainers. I'm forty something, and I wear trainers because I want to. <laughs> forty something. I'm not you are ready about for beige. I'm I'm not ready for beige. Yeah, I'm not ready for sandals. I'm not ready for socks and shorts. And I think this is what you're into. I think it, actually no, that's just a generational thing. I'm literally going to be wearing. I'm going to be ninety in old people's home wearing Reebok classics or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this is me. This is me, and I'm, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to start wearing shirts because I should do. I don't see the point. My mum always says to me, "When are you going to grow up?" Oh, I'm she like, means when are you going to become my generation? Yeah, and I'm like. I run a company. I pay my bills. Why? What part of growing up do I need? Yes, I still play computer games. I'm still very childish. I like um, pulling finger jokes. I like jump scares. I like um, things like that. I just like having fun. What's wrong with that? Perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, my mum just says, when are you going to grow up? Why should I? <laughs> what is it I'm not doing that requires me to change? I, I don't feel I should tread on the territory between you and your mother. We've, we've stepped over into counselling now. I'm not qualified. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have really, I've really enjoyed this podcast. It's, it's been, it's been really fun. And it's also, I'm mindful because you said earlier, like your skim reading, and then it goes in five minutes later. And just you saying that, I've noticed during the podcast that I'll say something five minutes oh, I, later. I have. I've done it, haven't I? You haven't. I've just gone. So yeah. I noticed. Sorry, I've noticed. No, um, that's okay. Oh, I told you. So you don't get yes, points for spotting it. 
it's fascinating that I'm literally going, oh, he's finished that conversation ages ago. Yeah. Just here going, <laughs> oh, and it was it was fascinating because you are listening to me. It means you are definitely listening to me. You're yeah, not just yeah. being polite. You are listening and saying things. You go, oh, yeah. So that was really like quite interesting. Like the buffering on the computer, just... And yeah. you see it with autistic children, that they'll be given an instruction and it doesn't process through. Then they get given the instruction again and again, and then they get into trouble before the first one is processed all the way through. So actually giving the instruction and then not putting in any other stimulation, not adding anything to it and just waiting results in the child following the instruction as quick as they were ever going to follow the instruction and you not getting angry and them not getting into trouble. My nephew got into trouble because they asked him to write a story and he sat there quite motionless. Yeah, he's got to do. He watched. The, he was watching the story. Mm. In his head, he wanted to get to the end of the story before he wrote it down. Yeah. Because he hadn't started writing it, he was doing it wrong. Yeah. He was having this amazing journey and story going on in his head and he wanted to get to the end. When he got to the end, he go, oh, I'll write that down. Yeah. But it's not the typical way, so you got in trouble. Um, so thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm going to share some of the links you've sent. So you sent me some YouTube links. Um, oh, did I send that already? Oh, that's stuff. good. Yes, and I've got um, some of those pages from the book, so we'll put those up so people can access those. Fab. And you'll find that along with your contact details in the show notes, which you can find wherever you listen to the podcast or also on the Sendcast website. Thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find the links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website, which is www.thesendcast.com. That's three W's. I think I might have said four. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. And on Facebook and Instagram, we are The Sendcast. And if you listen to us through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let others know what you think. And before we go, I'd just like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website. You'll find a number of the guests on the Sendcast are speakers at our virtual Send conferences. Um, Joanna is going to be hopefully recording one for us soon for our upcoming conference. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective, affordable, and fits in with very busy lives. And visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It is goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye, everybody. Bye.